Thanks very much. Two introductions. That's just an embarrassment of riches. Um, and I will add my thanks to the thanks that have already been um, given. Um, I won't introduce myself again and thereby make a third introduction. Um, but being that it's the first of such occasions, I do want to extend my thanks <coughs> to those who um, have really made my tenure here at Oxford so um, enriching and enjoyable. Uh, beginning with the history of art department here, um, absolutely excellent colleagues, fantastic students who've just done everything to welcome me and uh, make this a uh, real ideal academic home. Um, I'd also like to thank Worcester College, who invited me to be visiting fellow while I am here. And as you can see from your walk uh, to the auditorium, Worcester is an exquisitely beautiful place, and I have the distinct pleasure of living in college, so I get to enjoy it every single day, and it will be, um, it'll be very uh, difficult to leave. I leave with a heavy heart. Um, and last but not least, I would like to thank my funders, the Terra Foundation for American Art, um, as Craig intimated, a, a really remarkable organization based in Chicago and Paris, whose generosity has really been responsible for um, a, a a transformation in the field, there's no other word for it, um, through its commitment to supporting the um, exploration of the art of the United States through grants and fellowships and uh, sponsored professorships like the one that I have, <coughs> and educational programs in Europe and uh, I think starting now in Asia. So I can think of no other word to describe the Terra but vital uh, and its impact for which, uh, again, I am uh, very, uh, very grateful. The Terra Foundation, I will say, is uh, kind of commercial for uh, America's Cool Modernism. The Terra is the backer of the America's Cool Modernism exhibition, which is currently on view at the Ashmolean, and um, includes treasures of uh, modern art never before seen in Britain. And I encourage all of you to see it if you have not already. So before we get into the subject for today, and indeed for this series as a whole, I thought I might take a moment to make a few remarks about American art and why it is an exciting and compelling field in which to think as a scholar. The American artist Andrew Wyeth once said, talking art bores me, and I hate to, let, I hate to get caught painting. I have such a strong romantic fantasy about things, and that's what I paint. If you don't back up your dreams with truth, you have a very round-shouldered art. You see, I don't say, well, now I'm going to go out and paint something. To hell with that. Characteristically unpolished, Wyeth's words give us much to think about in answering the question of what is American art. Like the United States itself, it's a paradox. It was born from the rationality and empiricism of the Age of Enlightenment, but quick to render such self-evident truths unstable. It was powerfully invested in admiring nature as a source of divine regeneration, but at the same time, practical, pragmatic, in terms of the role art could play in the life of its practitioners and viewers. American art can be suspicious of refinement. It's tough. It could not be round-shouldered, but that does not or not always equate to a lack of subtlety or seriousness. And as we see again in Wyeth's example, it captures both the hard light of the working day and the undulating lace fringe on a diaphanous drape. I'm frequently asked, and more frequently than one might think, what makes American art an important enough field within art history to distinguish it from European art? 
Indeed, American art is a recent field of study and one of the fastest growing, owing to its tremendous inclusivity. It's a field that has been, and in many ways will be, marked by its original position as a fringe field with an institutional disadvantage in the shadow of the importance of European art history. But in paces, American art history came to be known for its development of a promiscuous methodology. American art history is, for instance, unusually receptive to taking quite seriously the advent of print and popular culture and to the vernacular culture in the form of furniture, tools, inventions, and technology. It's also, I think, very special in its interdisciplinarity and borrowing especially from literature. It has benefited greatly from a broad interest in ethnic subspecialization and the desire to problematize a singular notion of American identity. And recently, with thanks to the Terra Foundation, it has aspired to make borders appear as different and arbitrary that what it is to be American lacks permanent footing on the continent of North America. The tension between location and dislocation newly animates questions about Americanism and its transnational dimensions. I gave this lecture series a title, The Body of a Nation, to capture the sense of a body without a border. These four presentations are connected by their consideration of how bodies figure in American art history, in the curious resistance of America to cohere in the various bodily symbols attached to it. In fact, the idea of an American body was troubled right from the start. Colonial white Americans knew themselves as Europeans who belonged to a body, the body represented by the King of England, which represented an intangible God and a cohesive empire. Ramping up to the revolution, human dismemberment was a powerful visual for the American separation from Britain. When confronted with the task of uniting the colonies, human imagery failed in such representation because it had regal connotations. As just one example, Benjamin Franklin tentatively represented America as a serpent, earthly, secular, unadorned, and detached. But the human body, its pleasure, pain, triumph, bondage, freedom, defeat, and sickness, and especially its distance from or attachment to the body of a nation has been a question ever since. Thomas Cole's destruction was painted in 1836. It is a scene of chaos and slaughter. The gleaming white neoclassical buildings suggest at once a once great civilization replete with temples, government, and banks. Its stunning architecture hugs the coastline, evidence of the importance of a maritime economy from which it derived apparently great and enviable wealth. The promontory, the central part of the composition, rises above the city, solid and craggy and lush with nature. It might provide a refuge for those fortunate to escape the fatal clash below. Its stability and pyramidal amplitude contrast the overloaded suspension bridge, sagging with the weight of bodies and horses who will inevitably be cast into the tempestuous harbor, once the source of such great pride. 
But now there is no economic order on the sea, just wind and smoke. The great statues of their gods have been beheaded, blind to the carnage, unwilling, unable to save even the innocents from the demonic thirst for blood. And blood, it must be mentioned, is spectacularly everywhere. The focal point of this human tragedy is the figure at the bottom center, the figure closest to the viewer, illuminated by a shard of light and perfectly framed by the marble arch of the bridge. Pursued by a combatant, she looks over her shoulder and narrowly escapes murder by the means most grim, her own self-destruction, her suicide. Of all the ways to represent the pathos of the human condition, suicide is surely the most desperate. In what follows, I will explore the image of suicide in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, whose meaning and cultural legibility pertained very closely to the suicides of enslaved African and African Americans. Cole, who is the most storied of American landscape painters, the so-called father of the Hudson River School, was not an outspoken abolitionist. He was, however, as you might already be able to tell, a moralist who warned against the dangers of a decadent civilization. We may never really discern Cole's private attitudes towards race. Most likely he was in step with his contemporaries who were white Americans in New England. But the fact that he would hinge his spectacular masterpiece on the figure of suicide suggests the emotional texture and political complexity of slavery brought to the character of antebellum America, both North and South. What I see haunting Cole's destruction is this. A highly publicized and greatly sensationalized instance of suicide in the 19th century, known as Anna's Leap. In the silence of the earliest morning hours of the 19th of December, 1815, Elizabeth Blake, the wife of the Washington DC mayor, James Blake, was awakened suddenly by the sound of a crash and a wail. Rousing her husband, who was a physician, they rushed out into the street to see what was the matter. And they found the body of a black woman who later identified herself as Anna, who had defenestrated from an attic window. The fall had broken both of her arms and shattered her spine, but she had survived. The building from which Anna had jumped was Miller's Tavern, a site known for holding enslaved African-Americans awaiting sale. Anna's story, while exceptional for the publicity it generated, was also depressingly common. Born into slavery in Maryland, Anna worked for her enslaver until he succumbed to debt, at which point she was sold to another owner within Maryland when that enslaver also succumbed to debt, Anna was sent to Washington to be sold as a coffle of slaves destined for Georgia in the Deep South. Now this was technically against the law after an 1808 federal ordinance prohibited both the importation of slaves from Africa and also the interstate slave trade, such as from Maryland to Georgia. However, the explosion of American cotton cultivation, which served a flourishing machine-powered textile industry in Great Britain, drove the demand for more slaves, which were in short supply, 
to work on southern cotton plantations. Miller's Tavern was one among many corrupt businesses that illegally held slaves to be sold under subterfuge across state lines. Suicides at Miller's were not unknown. Aha, uh -huh, there we are again. Uh, before Anna, another enslaved woman had sliced open her own throat rather than live with the humiliation and depravity of slavery. To be sent to Georgia was anyway a fate like death, as it was understood that these enslaved, men, women, and children alike, would be forced to work harvesting cotton. To work in the cotton field meant exhausting long days in unbearable late summer heat and the constant fear of the whip. As you can see from this stereographic photograph, the overseer mounted on horseback monitored every movement. Slaves were severely chastised if they did not bring in the same amount of cotton or more than the previous day. But what did suicide mean conceptually within late 18th and early 19th century European and American society. In general, suicide was considered a sin and a crime, essentially self-murder. According to the church, the despair of life was something meant to be endured and not escaped. Victims of suicide might be denied certain liturgical rites or may have been interred at night out of shame. Under English law, Suicide was a felony against the crown because it robbed the monarch of a subject. And parenthetically, it's interesting to know that suicide was decriminalized um, here in the United Kingdom only in 1961, so quite recently. By the time of the American Revolution, however, local jurisdictions began to turn against felony verdicts in suicide cases in favor of something called non compos mentis, or of an unsound mind. In the legal system today, this is known as temporary insanity. The American statesman Thomas Jefferson recognized the role of emotional distress and mental illness that would lead someone to take their own life, including the enslaved. Now Jefferson, as a notorious slaveholder in Virginia, would know something of the subject. As horrifying as it sounds today, slave suicide was fairly commonplace in the early American Republic. In 1803, St. Simons Island, Georgia, was the site of one of the largest mass suicides of slaves. There, 75 Igbo captives from Nigeria organized a revolt aboard the slave ship York, killed their captors, grounded the ship, and drowned themselves in the sea. Enslaved people of Yoruba and Asante origin also understood suicide as an honorable death in response to captivity. Conversely, to enslavers, self-destruction was one of the most grievous offenses a slave could commit. It robbed the enslaver of property and needed to be avoided at all costs. If a slave had killed himself, slave owners might force living slaves to decapitate, dismember, or gibbet, that is, to cover the body of the deceased in pitch and rivet it into an iron cage for display in order to deter others from the attempt. Taking the larger view, slave suicide implicitly toppled the hierarchy of slavery. It was the ultimate act of subjective resistance against a system that regarded the enslaved of having no personhood. In 1815, 
Abolitionism was just starting to take root in America's more enlightened quarters. Anna's Leap became a symbol of the oppression of slavery and a rallying point for abolition, large in part to Jesse Torrey, a young medic who had been touring Washington around the time of the incident. Moved by the tragedy and indeed the perversity of the visible sl slave trade and slave labor in the capital city, Torrey set out to interview Anna along with other enslaved persons. And these accounts were published in The Portraiture of Domestic Slavery in the United States. When Torrey asked Anna why she attempted to take her own life, she replied, they brought me away with two of my children and wouldn't let me see my husband. I was so confused and distracted, I didn't know what I was about. The fear of breakneck conditions in the Deep South was only one part of the story. Tory's report attributed Anna's suicide attempt to another one of the most terrorizing fa facts of chattel slavery, which was the alienation of wives and husbands and parents from children, and one of the likeliest punishments to occur. Because slaves were understood as merely property and without a free will, they were not permitted legally to marry, even though many did enter into unrecognized unions, celebrated as broomstick weddings, as you can see from this 1899 engraving. Slaves also had children, which were also understood as the property of the enslaver. Anna told Tori that she and her husband had two daughters, that Anna said she was confused and distracted after separation from her husband proved to white abolitionists who were gaining momentum in the North that slave suicide was not a result of sinful self-indulgence, but rather that the trauma of enslavement took men and women out of their right minds, non compos mentis. Additionally, by linking Anna's temporary insanity to the separation from her family, she became a paragon of feminine virtue and her suicide attempt thus redeemed as consummately moral. To bring us back into the realm of the visual now, Tori's account was illustrated by an engraving of Anna's Leap by Alexander Ryder, a Philadelphia illustrator. By all means, it's a very stiff rendering. Notwithstanding, Ryder's image worked within the emerging abolitionist visual codes aimed to drum up the sympathies of its white readership. The only figure in the composition we perceive Anna's isolation and therefore her separation from her husband as a key part of the narrative. Her muslin dress has an open neckline, revealing her decolletage, suggesting her vulnerability to the systemic rape of female slaves that was a known part of coercing them into submission. But its gleaming whiteness, set against the nocturnal darkness of the scene, maintains her essential virtue. Additionally, the two cypress trees in the background bear strong historical connections to cemetery hedges, leaving the sense of Anna's Christianity intact. Anna's image and story had a massive impact within a growing set of abolitionist tropes circulating in the first half of the 19th century, which 
at the same time sentimentalized and politicized the tragedies experienced by the enslaved. One result is that the trope of slave suicide became significantly gendered. The image of the self-destructive male slave, which was already a part of abolitionist rhetoric, was most frequently rendered in terms of classicized gesture, finding ultimate human freedom through agency over death. The instrument of male self-murder was the dagger, which had an established visual precedent in the suicide of Cato the Younger, as we see in Charles Lebrun's interpretation from 1646. By contrast, the representation of Anna's leap seemed to lack such intentionality. Separated from her husband and her male protectors, we are led to believe that Anna sought death by defenestrating as a response, speculatively, to an intense pursuit of her sexual innocence. Such imagery tugged at the heartstrings of white male abolitionists who felt persuaded to protect Anna as much as white women who sympathized with Anna's debilitating loss of family stability. Correlatively, the many accounts and interviews of Anna generations after her suicide attempt did not recount her own valiant prosecution of the United States government in the federal court system, which earned her freedom in 1832. Instead, abolitionists focused on the heart-wrenching story of the extreme suffering she withstood, which led her into insanity, Anna's leap and not Anna's freedom, thus befit the intense emotional appeals needed to justify the end of slavery to whites. Thus we have two images of suicide, one in white and one in black. One, a painting highlighting a woman under duress, fleeing into the burning sea, and one, an enslaved woman, separated from her spouse and sold into the known horror of field slavery in the Deep South, who leapt from the attic window of a Washington tavern. And now with these images in mind, we return to Thomas Cole, America's preeminent landscape painter, a moralist who infused art with an eye to the land and world economies. I hope to suggest that these two suicides, white and black, are of the same substance and belong, if you will, to the same body. On the archive alone, we may not know about Cole's opinion of slavery, but we know beyond any doubt his experience with the exigencies of labor. Cole was born in Lancashire in 1801, the son of religious dissenters in a town called bolton le uh, Lancashire then, as now, is a place of great geographical diversity, ranging from areas of spectacular wilderness, immense meadows, and mud marshes, to windswept plains, to the port cities embracing the powdery and craggy coastline of the Irish Sea. Lancashire was also a vital place for English wealth production in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, owing especially to a steep increase in the manufacture of cotton textiles. The maritime city of Liverpool, not now, but historically understood to be situated in Lancashire, dominated in the transatlantic trade, including the slave trade, owing to its access via roads and inland waterways to lucrative merchandise traded in North America and Africa, cloth from Lancashire and Yorkshire, and guns 
from Birmingham. In contrast to the urbane coast, the Cole family's provincial Bolton was, by all accounts, a grim place and an example of the costs of industrialization for the livelihoods of its workers. Factories belched smoke and the water was polluted. Public sanitation, an afterthought. English landscapists captured the compromises of this industrialization. Philip de Lutherberg's Colebrookdale by Night of 1801 illustrates the infernal feel of a Shropshire town, which had for some time been at the forefront of iron smelting, was the home of the coke-fired blast furnace. In this dramatic painting, the viewer gets the sense of the extreme disruption and perversity of industrial work, the round-the-clock toil, and its concomitant toll on countryside life. Similarly, we get an idea of life in Bolton through Leeds, 1816, a picture by the great J.M.W. Turner, an artist who would later have a profound impact on coal. Although Leeds is in Yorkshire, it was connected by a turnpike roads to where Cole lived in Chorley as an adolescent. Here, the English moors are unsettlingly punctuated by smokestacks releasing their filth into a hazy bluish sky. In addition to its cost to the environment, there were human costs as well. Increased automation rendered the skilled workforce redundant. By the opening decade of the 19th century, domestic spinning was replaced by machine spinning, throwing an entire generation of textile workers into unemployment and poverty. These problems were acute across the north of England and Lancashire in particular. Bolton, which was once held in renown for skilled hand weaving, was in a state of complete and utter crisis, and it became the site of the most extreme clashes between unemployed workers and authorities. It was not generationally the case that working people in Britain took action against their employers because they feared violent retribution. But the severity of the problem contributed to the growing Luddite rebellion organized under the fictional character of Ned Ludd, who sought to disrupt the industry by breaking looms and setting fire to the mills. In 1812, Luddite rioters willfully smashed the steam-powered looms at West Houghton Mill in Bolton before setting it alight, as seen in the background of this cartoon. In the aftermath, four of the accused rioters were publicly hung and seven were transported to Australia, and the whole incident was so extreme that manufacturers bypassed Bolton for an entire generation. The presumably conservative caricaturist here intended to humiliate Ned Ludd by putting him in a dress made of the typical calico fabric produced by Lancashire mills. But as, as, some, as some have noted, this does hardly to make him seem weak or diminutive at all. Cole's father was ambitious, but unlucky. He tried and failed to make his fortune in Bolton, then in Chorley, then in Liverpool, and then in America, the Cole family having emigrated in 1818, arriving first in Philadelphia, and then settling inland in the town of Steubenville, Ohio. Amidst the volatility of his father's business ventures, the younger Cole worked consistently and showed considerable promise as an artist. He worked as a calico designer in Chorley, 
Later, he apprenticed as an engraver in Liverpool, a type of practical artistic employment that no doubt exposed him to a wide range of British landscape art and the conventions of the picturesque, which many scholars have noted filtered through to Cole's later and bolder approach to the American landscape. Still quite young, but with some experience, he worked as an engraver's assistant in Philadelphia, where he remained when his parents and sisters moved to Ohio. It is unknown whether such a young man would have known Alexander Ryder, the illustrator Tory employed to illustrate Anna's Leap, but it is likely. Cole's decision to momentarily separate from his family symbolizes the moment in every young man's life when he seeks to be independent from his father's reputation, or lack thereof, in pursuit of his own. I do not think Cole's work was particularly inspiring to him as an engraver, as engraving itself could be highly tedious. But the conversation about art in Philadelphia and New York in the early 19th century increasingly took on the flavor of an exciting sort. A younger generation of American artists began to turn away from the customary portrait and history painting genres to explore landscapes, the North American landscape, presumptively unexplored and magical views of mountains and forests, waterfalls, that they did believed did not rival, but rather surpassed that of any other place. Cole, drawn to nature, began to form an identity less as an engraver and more as an artist. And finally, seeking to come into his own, he arrived in New York City in 1825. And I'm tempted to say here, and the rest is history. Cole found tremendous success in New York, a city that was basking in its economic prosperity after the opening of the Erie Canal, which connected it via waterway to the agriculturally rich Midwest and eastward to the globe. Taking special interest in the dramatic views in the Catskill Mountain Range, just a short distance up the Hudson River from Manhattan, Cole specialized in landscape painting that not only depicted the exquisite American wilderness, but also told a story. In the stunning Catterskill Falls, Cole dramatized the features of the landscape. He clung to the bold interplay of light and shadow familiar to him from British picturesque painting, but adopted a much higher point of view, one that affords a powerful panoramic vision of American nature, an operatic gesture that lends itself to the loftier symbolism of the divine. In New York, Cole redressed his father's failures by cultivating a wealthy clientele comprised of the city's elder Dutch trading class. These are patriotic landowners who intuitively responded to Cole's aggrandizement of their dominion. He did so in one way, by achieving impressive scale in canvases that were appropriately easel-sized, saleable commodities, jewel-like objects for display in elegant drawing rooms. His clientele favored views that Cole strategically evacuated of human presence, particularly angled away from the energetic encroachment of industry that was creeping into America's rural New England, the canals and turnpikes that began to link factories to towns and towns to cities. America was Eden in Cole's and Cole's viewers' mind's eye, but the flood was yet to come. America was industrializing and quickly. This was 
all too familiar to young Cole from Bolton Lemours. Enriched by his success in New York, he set out for London, Paris, and Italy, a perfectly natural voyage for any American artist seeking to improve his hand by studying with a sophisticated and established elite, as well as from the works of old masters. And what Cole saw in Europe enriched his vocabulary of form and found expression in his later paintings, especially Destruction and the Course of Empire series to which it belongs. Far from the idealized grand tour in his mind, Cole's was a problematic voyage on several fronts, not least of which was the backdrop of continued major political instability and labor unrest in Britain that eventually cult resulted in the controversial and largely imperfect Great Reform Act of 1832. In London, Cole took up residence at number four Grafton Way near the newly built Regent's Park, which symbolized London's role as the richest and most important imperial European capital. By the way, don't go looking for number four Grafton Way. It's like a car phone warehouse or something, so, so you can skip it. Okay, uh, the artist uh, that he met, uh, he, he met artists that he admired like John Martin and uh, Turner and developed an encouraging friendship with John Constable. It was especially John Martin's highly romantic dramatizations of biblical scenes evident in such works as The Evening of the Deluge and Belshazzar's Feast, which appealed to the millenarian aspect of Cole's religious upbringing. He was disappointed when a cache of paintings did not achieve pride of place at the Royal Academy and failed to sell. Continuing his travels in Italy, however, Cole re recovered somewhat. He was very moved by the monuments of antiquity, absorbed equally by their impressiveness and their decay. In all, Cole returned to the United States in 1832, grateful for what he saw, but with a wearied eye toward old world empire that seemed less ready to understand him and with a renewed awareness of modern day political strife, which was attendant to pecuniary anxieties. Cole's masterwork, The Course of Empire, was thought up in Britain, but it tells us as much or more about his American anxieties. To that end, the title itself is borrowed from George Barclay's 1726 poem, Verses on the Prospect of Planting Arts and learning in America, the first line of which is the most cited, westward the course of empire takes its way. There are five paintings, the savage state, the Arcadian state, the consummation of empire, destruction, and desolation. I will allow Cole's own words penned in his London sketch sketchbook of 1829 to animate us now. He says, a series of pictures illustrating the mutation of terrestrial things. The cycle should commence with a picture of utter wilderness. The human figures should be savages, indicating in their occupations that their means of subsistence is the chase. The second picture should be a sunrise, here and there groups of peasants in the field. The third picture should be a noonday scene a gorgeous city with piles of magnificent architecture, 
all that can be combined to show the fullness of prosperity, wealth, and luxury. The fourth should be a stormy battle and the burning of a city, with all the concomitant scenes of horror. The fifth should be a sunset, a scene of ruins, dilapidated temples. All of these scenes ought to have the same location. Ending in tragedy, the course of empire is a warning. The exacerbated tone of course of empire, however, did not immediately appeal to Cole's usual aristocratic New York clientele. Once eager to moralize against the, the dangers of industrialism, a value that Cole enthusiastically shared, the landed gentry found that, indeed, industrialization enriched their investments. And this would have been especially true in the period of extraordinary wealth accumulation accumulation circa 1830, when Anglo-American banking and trade was at an all-time high. Motivated by the tremendous productivity of the British textile industry, America positioned itself to be the world's second leading country in the production of cotton cloth, with factories abounding in Cole's cherished rural New England. Finding all other potential buyers ambivalent, the course of empire found its patron in Mr. Lumen Reed, a self-made businessman and social climber who sought art patronage as a mark of distinction in the eyes of New York society. Reed was more impressed by Cole's reputation than the themes and aesthetics of his extraordinary paintings. And at last, we come to slavery once more. In the elaborate procession in the foreground of consummation, the third painting, Cole includes several black figures, which he called in his diary, captives on foot. Well appointed and unchained, these enslaved Africans disavow rather than reinforce any realistic connection to the misery to which chattel slavery pertains. Cole knew this. His own loss of patronage when he returned from Europe was connected to financial speculation and surging cotton prices, which in turn over-endowed the interstate slave trade. By 1836, however, his worst fears materialized. A food shortage in Britain destabilized London's hyperbolic lending to the American South, and the curtailments came fully into view. American cotton prices sank and slavery became a national flashpoint for the tragic, ongoing insanity of greed. Suggestively, one lone figure in the consummation parade holds her face in her hands, blinding herself as the marching slaves approach. Standing back from destruction, the suicidal figure is one among hundreds or thousands, a general scene of overt despair, but how Cole wants us to see this isolated figure, by now, I think you already know. Taking the intimate view, her torso is surrounded by the sea, the roiling sea, the sea of imperial abundance, the sea that for Cole was the place of passing from his history into his future, the sea across which the course of empire made its way. Surrounded by impending danger, 
She's the embodiment of suicide, non compost mentis. Perhaps too convenient a metaphor for feminine innocence in danger, but a compelling metaphor for any of Cole's viewers who understood all of its implications and its moral ambiguities. She rises onto a marble ledge and inclines against the air, like Anna, an enslaved black woman who knew exactly what her future held, who stepped into a window frame in the silence of an early morning and jumped. Questions, and I should say that uh, I'm not supposed to move around because of uh, microphone things, so um, I won't. And then uh, if you ask a question, I will repeat it for recording. So I open the floor. Yes. So uh, the question is about um, Native American removal um, as another uh, kind of comparative example for the idea of course of empire and uh, particularly with an eye toward um, a certain uh, American artworks, uh, Vanderlyn, you, what was the example you mentioned? Oh yeah, the last of the Mohicans, yes, yes, right. Yeah, right, yeah. No, that's fine. There, there were a number who did. Right. But Cora, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes, um, the, yes, I agree. Um, <laughs> I, I think that all of that is part of the, um, the extremely painful story of uh, how the New Republic established its dominion in North America. Um, I guess taking a historical view, what I'd say is that um, I didn't mention Jacksonian democracy sort of head on here um, because there's no time and how, how detailed do you get? But um, one of the things that, one of the things about Andrew Jackson as a president was a kind of American version of utilitarianism, um, which <clears throat> had both political benefits and also uh, very deleterious consequences for um, 
both the institution, uh, the, ins you know, the enslaved, who were trapped in the institution of slavery, and, um, and also for Native Americans. And I think part of that was you know, th this idea of um, appealing to a white middle class, but at all costs or at any costs was really what was motivating that. And uh, this, of course, this period coincides, you're, you're absolutely right, with Indian removal and all sorts of other kinds of um, deeply, uh, deeply problematic, um, deeply prob problematic things. So I think, you know, from the from Cole's perspective, um, he he just he would have been Jacksonianism, the kind of bombast of Jacksonian. He hated it. I mean, he was. Uh, you know, but Cole is also this tricky figure because in many ways quite conservative and appealed to a conservative elite, but also on the other hand had these very deep set feelings about labor and these very sentimental, although he wouldn't characterize it that way, but sentimental feelings about religion. And that makes him sort of the, uh, an interesting paradoxical rich study to uh, uh, study because he, all of that is kind of contained, contained therein. Um, I'm feeling as though I'm not answering your question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. How is that for the answer to the question? <laughs> I agree. Yes. Mm. Mm hmm. Sorry, say the last part again. Oh, yes, right, yes, yes. Yes. Yes, yeah, thank you. That, that's a great question. It's about um, the, the part in the talk which uh, was about uh, images of male suicide versus female suicide, and more particularly as an agency over death and how perhaps the Haitian Revolution, 1804, 1808? Much earlier then, okay, yeah. So end, end of the um, 18th century factors into that, which um, is, uh, it does absolutely factor in. One of the things that happens in the South it, from about the time of the turn of the century is that enslavers become profoundly anxious about slave rebellion. Uh, and so um, this also coincides with 1808, which is the moment when interstate slave trade is banned and also um, importation of slave from Africa. And so uh, the, the whole institution is kind of um, uh, roiling from within. Um, the enslavers became from what I understand, more severe in their punishment in order to deter rebellion. So for example, um, I'll be talking a little bit about this next week, so I don't want to give away all the answers, but uh, particularly as it turns on things like slave literacy, which had always been against the law, but became especially um, fractious and, and, and contentious after, after the slave rebellions. And I would add the Denmark Vesey's rebellion and all of those. So, um, so really, um, you know, I think that it's, um, it, it is part of the, uh, how the institution is uh, 
grasping for legitimacy, how a moribund institution is grasping for legitimacy is borne out in the, in the severity of how the slaves were driven. And um, it has massive consequences for, um, for the enslaved and what we know about them. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to talk about the dissenting church of that. Because some of the something you're going to write in the play. Yes. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, no, thank you for that. The, the question's about. Um, about the cyclical, uh, the cyclical nature of course of empire. Uh, later, he does another one called Voyage of Life, which was understood as a sort of cycle painting, um, cycle series of paintings, and how that fits in with um, dissenting. And it goes back to what we would call millenarianism. Um, let's see. I don't think I have to go back too far. Maybe I do. But he was he was very moved by uh, John Martin. So the evening of the deluge, I didn't really go into detail here, but I think that you can see a lot of uh, comparisons with it. Um, and uh, certainly with uh, Belshazzar's feast uh, from, uh, from the Old Testament. Uh, and the idea being that the world is totally corrupt and is going to go up in flames. Um, but that nature will eventually come back. And that was the part about decay that was most, the most important to Cole, was that nature remained. So in the course of empire, the enduring feature is the promontory. So it's, it's here, uh, oh, and then pan and zoom, and it goes to the other side, and then it's here in the background, and similarly here, and also here. <clears throat> and notably, the column is being overtaken, literally overtaken by moss and lichen, and so nature is coming back to reclaim human civilization. Um, and I think that that was, that was, in a way, because Cole felt so strongly about how God and nature, or how God could be read through nature, that this was, in a way, Providence sort of washing everything away and starting anew, a very sort of anti-Diluvian, post-Diluvian kind of idea. Um, and so, yes, I think that his millenarianism, the millenarianism of Martin really uh, influenced him, and that um, certainly as a religious dissenter, that was very much a part of his, um, part of his worldview. Uh, and, and I think, I think I'd, I'd need to think more about how Cole positioned himself vis-a-vis -vis evangelical movements in America in the 1920s and 30s, which were not really like British dissenting, uh, but were absolutely happening and were happening primarily in upstate New York where Cole was working. Uh, and those groups, those evangelical groups in the 20s and 30s, were um, highly abolitionist. Um, and, uh, and, that, uh, and that is something that I that I don't know, but is a great point. Katie, did you have a question? So just um, first is a fact which I'm sure you know, which is the series of paintings by 
No, that that does make that the the remark was about uh, not just black and white, but also male female um, dichotomies and tensions which exist in the painting. And actually, the reason why I'm doing this is because I have a nice little picture of it right here. I just I'm not you know going crazy. Um, uh, yes, that's that's a really that's a really beautiful um, reading. My intention here was just to sort of. Um, a flag or alert people the ways to the ways in which abolitionism was gendered. I think that was my sort of goal, um, and that it is that it no doubt intersects race and gender. No doubt intersect um, in in that, um, and you know I have to I would I, I I take your point very well. I, I would have to think a little bit more about it, but I always sort of was struck by the, uh, th that detail of the woman in the victory parade, who's the one who's hiding her eyes. Um, you know, I think that is also a really interesting figure because it, it, it's tiny, but it's definitely a, a woman. And I think, you know, the, and the gesture is ambiguous, but I'm sort of uh, reading it is something like she's covering her head or something's going on and she's the only one that really is doing that uh, whereas everyone else has their gaze kind of fixed on this victorious emperor who's returning from wherever um, the other thing too is to pick up on the earlier comment <coughs> I looked very carefully at Martin's um, painting of the deluge uh, and as sort of tumultuous as it is, there's no figure which seems to be willing themselves into death. Uh, everyone is kind of clinging on for dear life. Um, and this seems, the, this departure, Cole's departure from this, I think is special in that way. Uh, and um, why, I, why I chose to highlight it here. Do we have, we have one more question? Yeah, Tom. Yeah, good. Yes. Oh. The figure in desolation. Question is about the figure in desolation. Wow. Well, I can't find it right now. Uh, what I will say about it, though, is that there is a, um, when we think about figures, we're clearly here, it's Na Native American figures. That would have been something that Cole was, 
enthused about representing, um, most likely because he saw paintings in London of Aboriginal Australian people in um, paintings. So he was kind of thinking about indigeneity there. Um, and then for him in the Arcadian state, it's replaced by white figures who are engaged in the beginnings of civilization. So quite clearly, there was a kind of uh, anteriority which he ascribed to, to, um, to native figures. And there, the reason why I say that is that it would be interesting to know if we could find the figure here, what body that figure has. And um, Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>